Hey, this is Steve, and this podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus. No matter what you're going through today, even if you feel like you're going through the end of the world, even if you feel like there is nothing but a bad future ahead for you, Jesus calls us to repent of our bad vision of the future, to turn our eyes to him and to see through his eyes and to believe that he might just be in control. He calls you to re-vision your future. America is changing, has changed, is changing. Am I right? And I know a lot of believers are kind of living in fear. I kind of heard some fear talking this week. I heard a believer who was saying that it's getting to be a really scary time to be a Christian in America. This may be the scariest time ever in history to be a Christian. And I said, huh, you ever read a history book? (laughs) Because I have, I'm sure you have too, and, and I'm thinking about I'm thinking about Peter writing to his people, you know, his people who had been through a lot, specifically on July the 18th of 64 AD, when that giant fire broke out in the city of Rome, the capital city of the world at that time. The fire broke out. It displaced thousands of people. It burned two-thirds of the city, and it created all kinds of havoc. And everyone was furious at Emperor Nero because everybody blamed Nero for having the fire set. And Nero didn't want the blame on him, so he, of course, said, Hey, dude, wasn't me, wasn't me. You know who set this fire. It was those crazy Christian cult people right? Don't you hate them? I hate them. They're always telling you how bad you are, how sinful you are, and they're always talking about how all this is going to end in the flames of judgment. So it's those crazy people that are talking and that have caused the fire. Let's cancel the Christians. So this early on Christian cancel culture happens where they try to eradicate the Christians. This giant persecution breaks out against Christians, and Christians scatter everywhere because the persecution wasn't bad like people not liking you or people making fun of you. Uh, Here's what happened. Historian Tacitus writes in his account about how Nero dealt with Christians. Nero added every kind of mockery to their deaths. He had a lot of Christians put to death. They were publicly executed, nailed to crosses. Nero rolled them in pitch and set light to them and used them as living torches to light his gardens. He sewed them up in the skins of wild animals and he set his hunting dogs on them to tear them limb from limb while they were still alive. Dude, this is a bad time to be a Christian, right? And so Christians, as you can imagine, they're terrified, and they scatter. They go to all the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire, and they hide out. They lay low. They scatter, and they only meet in 
secret, hoping that no one will find out that they are Christians. They're all being exterminated, not because of anything they ever did, but because of what they think. Yeah, they are the victims of this early on cancel culture. So naturally, these early Christians had a really bad vision for their future. You know, when they thought about their future, they thought about darkness. They thought about hopelessness. They were discouraged and defeated. They felt like they had no hope in their lives. All they could do was hide and hope nobody found out who they were. Their only hope was to either keep quiet about their faith or to renounce Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They had a bad vision for their future. They were afraid they might end up like some of their friends, some of their family members, burned to death, torn apart limb from limb, or nailed to crosses. Yeah, they didn't think they had much of a future at all. Man, that's got to be discouraging. Man, that's got to be disheartening. That's got to be depressing and defeating. So Peter writes a letter to these people. And he opens up his letter with this thought to change their hearts and change their minds. See if it might help you. 1 Peter 1, he says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and now we live with great expectation. We have a priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So you be truly glad. Be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. Your faith is being tested as fire tests, as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through these many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. God speaks through Peter and God's word for a discouraged, disillusioned, disheartened people is the first blank on your page. And it is to revision your future. I know you might have a bad vision of your future. I know you might be feeling hopeless. You might be feeling doubtful. You might be feeling down and defeated and discouraged. But God calls us to revision our future. This advice from Peter seems totally foreign to what they were thinking. Totally different from any other advice that anybody might give them at this difficult, difficult time. It seemed, frankly, backwards. Right? Because everything they were experiencing told them they had no hope. Told them that everything was going to hell fast. And that they would probably die a painful, horrible death. Believing in Jesus, 
not doing anything, not acting in any specific way, but believing in Jesus put their lives in grave danger. And their only hope was to hide in fear, hoping that no one would discover them. But Peter says, revision your future. Think differently about your future. And remember, Peter's not just some naive, childlike optimist, right? It's Peter. Peter, remember Peter? Cynical fisherman turned reluctant disciple, right? Peter, who even as a disciple was the rebuker of Jesus, right? Even as a disciple, he was the denier of Jesus. This is Peter, who saw Jesus operate at his fullest and still rebuked him and denied him. And so Peter gives them this opposite, this backwards advice. Maybe Peter is thinking about Jesus' vision of the future. Because 30 years earlier, Jesus had walked with Peter and it had a vision for the future and it gathered people together and explained that vision over and over again many times Jesus shared his heart shared his vision for the future and Peter remembers back to how Jesus explained it there's one time in particular where Jesus gathers people around and Peter a young much younger Peter is there <laughs> and Jesus describes what the future looks like to his Servants. And here's what Jesus says 30 years earlier in Luke 12. He says this to servants. He says, Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready the servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth, he himself, he himself will seat them and put on an apron and serve them as they sit and eat. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants, the servants who are ready. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would not permit his house to be broken into. So you also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. So Jesus is painting a picture here of a very different present and a very different future. The story he tells is that you are a servant in a wealthy household. You serve the master who is wealthy beyond all imagination. And the moment that you have long been waiting for is finally arriving. Your master is returning. Make no mistake about it. Over and over and over again, every time Jesus shares his vision of the future, he's really clear about one thing, and it's the next blank on your page, that Jesus is the hero of this story. Can I get an amen? amen. Jesus is the hero of this story. It's not me, it's not you, it's Jesus. We talked about that the last couple of weeks, that he's the focal point, he's the hero of the story. And the way Jesus tells it here, dude, there are some, frankly, backwards 
things about Jesus's vision in this story. Look how backwards it is. First of all, in Jesus' vision of the future, the hero master comes home to the welcome banquet. Welcome home banquet. And when he arrives, he puts on an apron and he treats the servants as the guests of honor. He honors and serves the ready servants. Dude, that's crazy backwards. Can, can you imagine that happening in real life? So first of all, his welcome home banquet is really, really backwards. The other thing I love about this vision of the future is that Jesus is totally comfortable casting himself in the story as both the hero master and the thief. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm coming when you least expect it. I'm breaking in to steal stuff. He's okay with being identified as the thief because that's exactly what Jesus does, right? Jesus came into this world and he went around everywhere and he stole fear and doubt and sickness and pain and sorrow and grief. He stole that away from everybody and he planted in the process, in its place, he planted the kingdom of God. Am I right? He's the thief of all the things that separate us from God. All those things like doubt and fear, all those things like hiding out and lying about ourselves and to ourselves, he steals that away from us. All those things that keep us away from God, keep us out of relationship with God and keep us under God's judgment, he steals that stuff away from us. We freely, hopefully we as servants repent and give that stuff to him because he wants it he wants to take it from us so that we don't have to live that way anymore instead of living enslaved to our fears we get to live the abundant life that Jesus has promised us and so he does this he he goes around healing people teaching about the kingdom casting out demons performing miracles and talking about the kingdom of God which is here now that's what Jesus is all about. And then, then, when he's done with that, he goes to the cross. And on that cross, he steals the very punishment for all of your sin from you. You and I deserve to be punished for all those things that we wallow in, that we keep between us and God, but he steals that punishment away. He says, nope, I'm not gonna let you be punished for it. I will take it in your place. And he dies for your sin. And then three days later, he arises. He rose from the tomb and he gives you his new abundant, powerful life so that you can live like he lives in the kingdom here and now. Somebody ought to say amen to that. Thank you, Jesus, for being the thief of all of our sin and our pain of judgment. Our master's kingdom is a backwards kingdom. He's the hero, and he puts on the apron, and he honors and serves the ready servants. Look at this. Here's what he says about it in Luke 12. Again, he says, the servants who are, what's this word? The servants who are what? Okay, keep this in mind. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. 
I tell you the truth, Jesus says, he, the master hero himself, will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. The servants who are ready. The hero honors the servants who are ready. Those who are prepared for the master to return. The master returns and serves these servants. Look at Luke 12 again. Jesus uses this interesting phrase that he says. He says, be dressed for service. He's talking to me and he's talking to you, servant. He's talking to all of us good little servants and he tells us to be dressed for service and keep the lights on. Be ready dressed for service this is a really interesting phrase it comes from a greek word uh, that we find here this is what jesus says he actually uses this word okay what's this word yeah that's what i thought (laughs) jesus uses this greek word the word is zonumi he says zonumi be dressed for service be prepared for action zonumi this word literally means gird yourself or gird your loins. It was a very common phrase that they would use in those days to say, be prepared for action. Be ready to go on moment's notice. Gird yourself, prepare yourself. We don't say gird your loins today. I mean, can you imagine showing up today and saying gird your loins? What do we say if you're gonna get ready for work? What do we say? Come on, roll up your sleeves and be ready, right? That's what this means. Jesus is saying, roll up your sleeves and be ready. He's not talking about just simply being ready to work. He's saying be prepared for the job that you have ahead of you, right? So a better way to say that even than roll up your sleeves might be, hey, Aaron Dean, it might be show up on time at the job site with all of your tools so you're ready to get the job done. Am I right? Right? That's what it means to zone me. That's what it means to be a good, faithful, ready servant. It means to have all your ducks in a row and know what it is you need to do, being equipped and ready to do the job you've been given. That's what Jesus is saying. Zone me. Be dressed for service. This is really important for us. The servants the master honors are the zone me servants ready for action and don't forget while jesus is saying this peter is right here in fact peter wasn't sure exactly who jesus was talking to so he asks for clarification this is a much younger peter and he says lord is that illustration just for us or for everyone i mean come on jesus you're talking about the faithful servants i mean you're not talking about everyone surely you don't mean everyone you you mean us us right you mean us 12 the 12 disciples you know me and these other guys you mean us we should be we're the servants that will be honored above all else right jesus and i love what jesus does because uh jesus describes what he means for a ready servant instead of giving a yes or no direct answer jesus describes who he's talking about here's what he says the lord replied a faithful 
sensible servant. How many of you hope to be faithful and sensible in your life? Yeah, that's me too. The Lord replied, a faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant, the faithful, sensible servant, has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all that he owns. So the faithful, sensible, future honored servant is the one that Jesus trusts with responsibility. And they effectively steward their responsibility. They know what their job is, and they know who they're responsible to, and they know who they're responsible for as servants. And they're making sure that everything they've been given responsibility for is effectively managed and cared for. So I can see kind of why Peter might have thought, maybe you're just talking to, you know, us. Maybe Jesus is talking to preachers, to pastors here. But you know, I think about all the times Jesus talked about masters and servants. I think about some of the other stories he tells about masters and servants. And I think specifically about the parable of the servants with the different talents. Remember that story? Some are given a lot to be responsible for and some only a little bit. But they're all given something to be responsible for. That's what it means in Jesus' eyes. In the hero's eyes, that's what it means to be a servant. So, sure, he's talking to pastors, people like me. Talking to elders and deacons. But isn't it true that if Jesus is talking about people who are supposed to steward their responsibility, isn't he talking not just to pastors and elders and deacons, but isn't he talking to life group leaders and parents and co-workers and husbands and wives and students and friends and family members? Because I believe that it, for you and me, in every context and in every relationship, we have people that we are responsible to and responsible for. That God himself, the hero, Jesus Christ, has put us in charge to some degree of being responsible for the people and the ministry around us. This is a big deal to Jesus. He sees you and me as servants with talents to steward. So last week, last week we talked about this. We talked about glorifying, magnifying God. That's our purpose here. And Jesus says we do that by loving God, loving others, and making disciples, reproducing ourselves in others. And this is so important to Jesus that this thought leads Jesus to speak what I think might be some of the scariest words Jesus ever said. He says these words next. And these words ought to make us tremble. Ought to make us servants tremble. Are you listening? Here's what he says. He says, what if the servant thinks, you know, my master won't be back for a while. 
and the servant begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. In other words, what if the servant forgets for a minute that there's a hero master? That, that the servant isn't the star of the show, but the master is. What if the servant forgets that for a minute and thinks, you know, this is all about what I want. This is about what I feel like. And what if the servant, instead of serving the master, what if the servant begins to self-gratify, doing what he wants, being irresponsible, and abusing other servants? What if the servant begins to abuse the privilege of being a servant in a wealthy household? Here's what Jesus says. Here's what happens. The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut, look at this, he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. You won't hear most preachers point to this verse because right here, the master equates the unfaithful servant with the unfaithful. They have the same ultimate destination, except it looks like it might be even more painful for the unfaithful servant hello these are heavy scary harsh words from Jesus and what this ought to tell us you ought to write this down it's the next blank on your page is that Jesus takes your role very seriously yeah he's the hero yeah he's the master yeah this is his story but he takes your role in the story very seriously Seriously, do you? I'm just going to let that sit there for a second. He takes your role seriously. Do you? Do you and I take our role in his story seriously, or are you and I abusing the privilege of being a servant in the wealthy household? You and I both hear the voice of the unfaithful servant, the old man, talking to us all the time about this, right? Oh, I just, I can't lead a life group, right? Or I don't know what to say to my lost friend. Or, you know, I just don't really have time to be in God's word. Or I don't make enough money to give back to God. Or I don't have a talent that I think God wants to use. Or I really just don't feel like giving another night of the week away to serve other people. These are all excuses of the unfaithful servant, the old man, your enemy. The one that Jesus himself describes will be chopped into bits and banished with the unfaithful. Don't be fooled by the voice of the unfaithful old man. Stop listening to him. Jesus takes this very, very seriously, and so should you, and so should I. And then Jesus kind of wraps up this whole thought by saying this, American Christian servant. He says, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. 
Like I don't, I don't have much. I don't, I don't have, I don't have time. I don't have money. I don't have energy. I don't have knowledge. I don't have wisdom. I don't have gifts. I don't have talents, dude. My Bible tells me that you have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. All you need for living the godly life is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Stop making it out to be something it's not. It's all in Jesus. When Jesus steps into your life, you've got everything you need, unless Jesus isn't enough. Hello? You're like, well, but I live in a small house and I don't really have much. Dude, stop. Shut up for a second, American liar. Because you're a 21st century American. That means that you are today, today, in 2021, you are among the top 5% of the wealthiest people on the planet. There are still millions of people in this world, millions of people in this world that you can go and visit in their grass hut that don't have access to clean running water. Millions. And look at you. You probably emptied your hot water tank taking a shower this morning before coming here. Oh, wait, that's my daughter I'm thinking of. <laughs> Every time. Don't have enough. Dude, we've talked about it a thousand times. Did you realize that for 1,500 of the 2,000 years of Christianity, no Christian owned a personal copy of God's Word? For 75% of Christianity, no Christian had personal access to God's Word. In fact, having your own copy of the Bible was such a crazy, far out there, radical idea that when people like William Tyndale decided that he was going to leverage this brand new invention called the printing press to print Bibles, copies of the Bible, and to get them into every Christian's hands, that idea was so far out radical that the other Christians killed him for that. The church killed William Tyndale for having the audacity to think you should have a copy of God's Word. And today, you have access to the free Bible app. It requires no extra money. If you've got a smartphone or a computer, you have access to every single translation of the Bible there is. All of them in the palm of your hand. Not to mention all the devotional guides and the reading plans. Don't have anything. Hello? Look what you have. Dude, you have a car that you came here today in. We spent time down there in Haiti among the people that every day, every single morning, if they want to have water for their family in the house, mama and the babies have to get up early and go before the sun really comes up. They have to walk sometimes, in some cases, for miles, two, three, four, five miles to the closest well that usually some missionary group has drilled. They have to scoop up water into jars, and then mama and the kids carry the water back, and that's their water for the day. They've just spent hours just going to get water. And you and I just do that. So you got a car, you got running water, you got a living room, you got lights you can turn on and off, and you say you don't have anything that God can use. To whom much is given, much will be required. 
You have, you're sitting on top of wealth that most people in the world can't even imagine. And you even have a supercomputer in your pocket. And your old man makes excuses for you. Well, I'm just a high school student. Well, I don't really know where to start. Or this is my favorite one. I've heard this one a bunch of times, so I wrote it down in my notes. Here it is. Ready? We moved up here to the mountains to get away from everyone. Okay. Sleep soundly, little servant. Sleep all you need to sleep. But your master is returning for what is his. And he takes this very seriously. Can I get an amen? He is coming back. And sure, some things may look tough right now. Life may look like it's dark right now. And you may feel disadvantaged. You may feel disqualified. You may feel like you're disenfranchised. But that's why Peter, 30 years after Jesus said this, writes this to his people. He says, be truly glad be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead even though you must endure many trials for a little while these trials will show that your faith is genuine it's being tested your faith in other words trusting jesus to live your life as a servant in the wealthy household the way he commands you to that's what faith is your faith is being tested And it will show, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor. It will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Sounds like 30 years later, Peter is echoing the same vision that Jesus articulated 30 years ago. What he's saying is guard that old man. Stop letting him have influence in your life. Stop letting him negotiate your life down out of the abundance that Jesus promises for you. Revision your future and be who you're supposed to be. Wow. Peter continues this thought with his challenge to these discouraged readers. He says this, prepare your minds for action. You hear me, servant? Prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Stop listening to the old man. Stop making excuses. Stop living the old lie and prepare your mind for action. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old man ways of living to satisfy your own desires, servant. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy for the scriptures say you must be holy as i 
am holy. Peter challenges his people. Don't just sit there and abuse the privilege of living in the wealthy household, but prepare your mind for action. Look at how he says it. He says, prepare your minds for action. This is why I think Peter is echoing Jesus's vision from earlier because he doesn't actually say this. He says this. He says, zonomy. He says, zonomy. Be prepared. Gird your loins. Roll up your sleeves. Get your tools in your toolbox. Prepare the people around you. Turn the lights on. You have a wedding, sorry, a welcome home banquet to prepare and there's stuff to be done. In other words, next blank, get your house in order. Order. Get your house in order. Stop letting it float and being an abusive situation where you're just taking advantage of being in the wealthy household. Stop living as if your master isn't really the hero of the story. Get your house in order. He's coming for what's his. Is the food ready for the banquet? Are the lights on? Have you adjusted the thermostat? Is the table set? Are the carpets cleaned? Are the people ready? Do they know their jobs and have they been equipped to do their jobs? Are the guests all invited and on alert? This is our job. We're preparing a welcome home banquet for the hero. Why are you sitting there? Like you're destined to be some kind of bench warmer watching from the sidelines. B a faithful, sensible servant. I know, I know. You're like, well, I don't know where to start. I, I don't really even know where to start. Well, let me give you a list. Let me start right here. Start a life group. That would be good. We need more life groups. Begin discipling someone. Begin reproducing yourself and someone around you for Jesus. Learn some good biblical theology. We've got great theology classes that we do here, and there's a ton of other resources you can use. Study and meditate on the Word of God. Man, you should be in the Word all the time. We talked about how to meditate just a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday night. Serve on a team man give yourself away for just a minute like a servant does go to celebrate recovery lead in youth ministry join the band start a relationship with a neighbor of yours and start a bible study at, at lunch where you work or where you go to school is this not enough how many things do i need to list out for you for you to realize that your hero takes your role seriously Children's ministry is another good one. Thank you, Betsy. Because listen, he takes your role seriously, not your role sometime off in the distant future when you're ready. It starts now. That means he wants you active, faithful, and sensible in Kusawati or on Walnut Mountain or in Talking Rock or up on Boardtown Road or out Big Creek or at Gilmer High School or at Mountain View Elementary School or out at Cardicay, wherever you find yourself, whatever context, whatever relationship, the master takes your role seriously. Here's the last blank on your page. The master is coming and there is much work to be done. Let's get at it, church. Mm -hmm.